I am preaching from Psalm 22 this morning, uh, and this is perhaps a longer text than you're used to having read to you on a Sunday morning, but I'm going to read the entirety of the psalm to you, and then we'll jump into it. Uh, sometimes it's hard to sort of stay plugged in when you're reading such a long uh, passage of Scripture, but let me encourage you um, to do the best you can with that. If you're using one of those pew Bibles, it's on page 292, 292, and I'm going to read Psalm 22 from beginning to end. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you our fathers trusted They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm, not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who seek me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws, you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in all of him. All of you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. And he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Oh, Father, I pray that you would make the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts to be acceptable in your eyes our strength, and our Redeemer. Meet with us, revive us, move in us by your Spirit. In the name of King Jesus, we pray. 
Amen. You know those moments in your life when you've just gotten a text message or a phone call and you hear that your friend or family member has been in an accident? You're not sure how serious it is, but you know something bad has happened. The first thing you want to know is, are they stable? Have they been stabilized since the accident? They might be suffering. They may may be in severe amounts of pain, but at least they're in stable condition, we might say. I think there are very few experiences in our life that are universal to everyone who has ever lived. In fact, there may only be one that is universal to everyone who has ever lived, and it's suffering. And if suffering is a universal reality, we ought to be prepared for it because it's coming. Be encouraged this morning. My prayer and hope for us this morning is that we would learn to suffer in stable condition. Human suffering wears a million different masks, and they're probably all represented in this room this morning. Like when you get that really bad news at work, or perhaps you've been victimized by prejudice or injustice. That temptation or addiction that you've prayed and prayed and prayed about, but just cannot shake. A loveless, painful marriage. When a friendship is torpedoed by gossip, anxiety, depression, infertility, disease, doubt, unemployment, sick children, unwanted singleness, cancer, untimely death. What do you do in the face of situations like that? Well, Psalm 22 is tailor-made and God-breathed to help you suffer through these or whatever it is that you're faced with right now or will be faced with in the future. To suffer through these in stable condition. Now, we don't actually know the circumstances that David was facing when he penned these words, but I do think we can learn from his experience that Merely looking around is destabilizing. Just looking around you at the circumstances is destabilizing. You look around because you have to. You're alive. You have to understand what's in front of you. You can't ignore your life. You can't act like the pain or problems that you're experiencing right now don't exist because they do in reality. But if you only look at your pain, if that's the only air that you breathe, your soul will be crushed. And you can watch that reality playing out in real time in David's life here in Psalm 22. And what I hope you can gather here is that the Bible actually understands your suffering. It can empathize with you. David himself suffers through seasons of silence, of scorn, of affliction. Look at the silence in verses 1 and 2. David poses two questions. He says, why have you forsaken me, God? Why are you so far from me? Maybe you felt that. And for David, both of those questions were met with silence. David felt completely alone, utterly forsaken, like like God was a myth. Or maybe even worse, that God was deaf to his problems. No help in the day, no rest in the night. Can you relate to that? But David doesn't only sense God's silence. He's also frustrated and wounded by the world's scorning of him. In verses 6 to 8, there is nothing so deeply painful as when someone laughs at us, especially when it's something that we so closely identify with. 
That's why kids complain when they're being laughed at. She's laughing at me. It's just, it's painful to be laughed at. Look at verse seven. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. And it gets worse for David in verses 12 to 18. As he suffers through affliction, he says, I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. That's like brittle pottery. My tongue sticks to my jaws. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. And so here for David, it's just one thing after another after another. And David is just straight out of gas. There is nothing left in the tank. He's spent. He couldn't get off the mat even one more time. The silence, the scorn, the incessant affliction had KO'd him. He was done. Have you felt this? You're not living a victorious life. No, 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 no. Far from it. You're just working on simply wanting to get out of bed in the mornings. You're just holding on for dear life. You know if you get up again, you're just going to get beat down again. So what's even the point? God is not silent on this. He has spoken into those feelings that you feel or will feel. Will feel. Verses 1 and 2, David looks out at his circumstances and he despairs. But verses 3 to 5, he looks up and there is hope. Number two this morning, confidently looking up is stabilizing. Merely looking around is destabilizing, but confidently looking up is stabilizing. After processing the silence of God, David reminds himself who he's dealing with. So while at the same time all this mess is happening in David's life, he says, yet you are enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. To you they cried and were not put to shame. And so like David, we too need to force ourselves to take moments to remember what is actually true about God. What is true about his character, about his record. David intentionally recalls what God is like and what he's done in order to gain traction and stability in his life. Do you need traction? Do you need stability? Look to and remember what is true about your God. When is the last time you reflected on God's character and on his historical record, his perfect record? It will stabilize you in suffering. I remember when I was in college, my grandmother would send me care packages, usually filled with chocolate chip granola bars and Tabasco-flavored spicy Cheez-Its. And that is a combo platter of culinary joy right there, if you ask me. (laughs) But there's another thing I can remember from those care packages. Each one would have a card in it. Sometimes they would have a little money to buy more spicy Cheez-Its, of course. But she'd always scrawl a few words on that card. Keep looking up. Sometimes that's all she'd write, is just keep looking up. Keep looking up to the king on the throne. And this Godward gaze is David's only pathway to stability and suffering. His only pathway. He gazes again after his next tirade about the scorn in verses 6 to 8. He preaches to himself in verse 9. Look at it. He says, Yet you are he who took me from the womb. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Listen, you will always be preaching to yourself or someone else will be preaching to you. But the ears of your soul are always perked 
They are always listening. I'd encourage you to follow David's example here. Preach truth to yourself. And there is nothing wrong with talking to yourself. I do it all the time. And so this cadence continues. It's despair, hope, despair, hope, despair, hope. And this is, this is real life. This is the fight that God has called us to as human beings. And the best option we have for stability and suffering is super simple here. Knowing God better. If you want to be stable, know God and know him more and more. Politics can't stabilize you. Money can't. Booze can't. A nicer house can't. Sex can't. Netflix can't. The best those things can offer you is diversion. Temporary diversion. But we need something more than diversion, don't we? We need something more than diversion. We need deliverance, not diversion, which is why I couldn't be happier to show you how the psalm begins to shift here towards the end. This is kind of like a two-part psalm. Verses 1 to 21 are a prayer where David feels deserted by God. And then verses 22 to 31 are a praise where David celebrates the deliverance of God. He feels deserted, and now he's enjoying deliverance. But David doesn't just look up for stability. He looks actually into the future. So number three this morning, confidently looking long into the future sustains stability. Confidently looking long sustains stability. Something shifts here halfway through verse 21. You have saved me, is what he says there in 21. It's like that daddy, if you can think back to Mark 9. It's like that daddy in Mark 9 who desperately wants deliverance for his little boy. He wants him to be healed. He says, look, I believe you, Jesus. Just, just help my unbelief. Help me. And that's the rhythm, rhythm of faith in suffering. Dismayed at what you see and then heartened by looking to the God who saves. One of the practical ways in our home that we've tried to cast our gaze to the long view, to the future, without losing sight of the current view, is by intentionally identifying sickness as something that should drive us to hold on to our future hope. We do pray for healing, of course, from sniffles or from scrapes and bruises and that kind of thing. But more than anything, we pray that this sickness will help us long for the day where there will be no more sickness. So we're praying with our three-year-old and our five-year-old and our seven-year-old and our nine-year-old, please, God, Help this sickness drive us to you and to hope in you when, when one day all this messed up brokenness will be gone. You have fixed it all, bringing wholeness where there was once brokenness. So in this way, we don't forget the pain of fever or flu or whatever it may be, but we do attempt to frame it eternally. Looking at the ailment through the lens of eternity can transform your suffering. It won't always be this way. Our fevered despair will one day give way to flourishing praise. And you know what's encouraging about the flow of this psalm, at least for me, is that it took a while for David to land on verses 22 to 31, where he's filled with faith and hope and trust. And I think often for you and I, it's going to take us a while to get to that space, that headspace where we're trusting God in the midst of our suffering. And the Spirit paves the way for David to sort of give 
holy vent to this frustration. But whenever God is present, despair will inevitably give way to hope. When God is present, your despair will inevitably, eventually give way to hope. Maybe not pain-free hope, certainly not scar-free hope, but hope nonetheless. And why is there hope? Why is there hope when you are living in darkness? Because God hears you. Verse 21. Probably in most of your translations it says, you have rescued me. But the true meaning behind that word there, rescued, is actually answered. If you have an ESV, uh, it has a footnote there, if you look carefully, that gives reference to that. And to answer someone, you have to hear them. For God to answer you, he has to hear you. There is hope for your situation because God hears you. And once David is sort of reassured of this hope, he resolves to keep praising. And interestingly here, do your pastors a favor, he is resolved to keep gathering. Do you see it there in verse 22? He says, I will tell your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You see, in the midst of suffering and hardship, you're going to be tempted to turn inward, to hole up until the storm passes over. Ugh, I just don't feel like worshiping today. I don't want to see anyone today. But this is his precisely the time that you need to gather with God's people, to get together in Jesus' name with Jesus' people, to sing your heart out, to cast yourself on the mercies of God with the people of God. We all know instinctively that doing only things we feel like doing is a recipe for disaster. Only exercising when you feel like it. Only eating healthy when you feel like it only going to work when you feel like it. And now maybe you say, but wouldn't it be hypocrisy for me to come into this place when I don't feel like it, to be with God and his people? I heard a pastor, Kevin DeYoung is his name, he said this recently, and I think he's exactly right. To do what is right when you are suffering is not the mark of hypocrisy, but it's a mark of maturity. It's a mark of maturity. So yes, there are certain things you need even when you don't want them. Gathering with this family on a weekly, consistent basis during seasons of suffering is probably one of those things that you might not always want, but that you need at the core of your being. When we're suffering, the way that we stabilize is by being lifted up by these people right here. One of the pastors in Sojourn, his name is Mike Cosper, he said this, the gathering is unique, not as an encounter with God, since God's presence is a constant comfort and help to the Christian, it's unique as an encounter with God, intensified among the people of God, filled with the Spirit of God. It's communal, not individualistic. Christ in me meets Christ in you. The gathering should be a place where believers are built up and encouraged in the midst of the various trials and circumstances in their lives. So when we gather, when you gather, you sing to each other. You declare the truths of the gospel to each other. Your presence and your participation is not merely for the sake of your individual relationship with God, but it's also for your brothers and your sisters' sake. When you sing, you are speaking truth and love to your church around you, and your bold confession of faith may be exactly what someone nearby needs to hear in the midst of his or her dark hours. 
David understood that gathering with God's people is a stabilizing experience in seasons of suffering. You should believe that too. And then look how this worship really brings the long view into focus here. The last root of this psalm digs deep into the rich soil of God's inevitable future. Verses 27 to 31, they are prophetic, they are victorious, and they are beautiful and stabilizing for whatever it is that you're going through. Look at what the end will be like when God's rule comes in finality. This is verse 27. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. All the prosperous of the earth, Eden worship before him, shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. There is coming a day, friends, when Jesus will make all things new. Let this stabilize you even as you suffer. Now, I don't want you to be offended by this, but I do want you to know that Trinity Community Church lays ownership to the world's most avid Eagles fan, okay? Some of you in here probably would disagree with that, but my friend, his name is Jason, he drove to Minnesota and back for the Eagles Super Bowl a couple of years ago. But I'd bet a bunch of us would make that drive if we had been given tickets like he had been given, given tickets to the Super Bowl. So that's not what tells me he's a uniquely passionate fan. The proof of his unique passion is that he has invited me over to his house to watch the Super Bowl with him no less than five times. And we're not talking about like this coming February Super Bowl or even last year's Super Bowl. We're talking about the Super Bowl from two years ago Super Bowl. He told me just a few weeks ago that he's seen it at least 15 times since the final whistle blew on February 4th, 2018. But do you know how stressed he was early in the fourth quarter of that game while he sat in the stands in Minnesota? Do you know how much stress he watches the replay of that game with now? Zippo. None. Take, for instance, if you can go back in your mind, Tom Brady's touchdown pass to Gronk to take the lead in the fourth quarter. The Pats go up 33-32, to and we're all feeling like it's going to be another Brady-Belichick miracle, feeling real bad. But do you know why we all felt that desperation in those moments? Because we didn't know the end. We didn't know how it was going to end. But now when I watch it with Jason, the world's most avid Eagles fan, um, when I watch with Jason, I know the end. There's no fear in my heart that this will be the one time the replay gets it wrong. Because we know the end, we've seen how this goes. Eagles win, Pats lose. Amen? Amen. Good. Friends, because of the cross and the triumphant, real resurrection, Jesus wins. Death and sin lose. Knowing the end reduces fear and stress and angst. That's the power of verses 27 to 31. The end matters. It does. When it looks like things are slipping out of control, the end matters. When the suffering intensifies, the end matters. When there are more questions than answers, the end matters. It matters even more than the present. Friends, this is one of the primary purposes of your Sundays here, to point one another to this 
sure and inevitable end. God isn't done. Heaven is a reality and it's waiting for all of us in Christ. So with that future in view, we press on, even as we are pressed by affliction, by silence, by scorn. And while we'd be shortchanging this psalm if we didn't cover one more thing very briefly, I asked my seven-year-old, Ellie, to help me with this next piece. Uh, I don't know if the picture... There it is. Um, If you're at the foot of a mountain that has a higher mountain just behind it, you might not actually realize that there's a taller mountain just behind it because all you can see is that big mountain right in front of you. But if you were to climb that front mountain, you'd soon realize that there was something bigger even beyond that mountain that you're climbing. So when David first penned this psalm, he was sitting at the base of this theoretical front mountain. The mountain for today's example is Psalm 22. He didn't know what lay beyond what he could see, but there is something even more beautiful that lay beyond his perspective, even though at that point he may have had no idea what it even was, but it was there. Though Psalm 22 was written thousands of years before the crucifixion, its ultimate function in our lives is to act, is to act as a lens to view the cross through. And then beyond that, the cross functions as a lens to view your own suffering through. The cross demonstrates loudly and clearly that God has a redemptive plan for your suffering. As hard as that might be to see right now. Psalm 22 is prophetic and it is messianic in that it prophesies about the Messiah. Consider that Jesus quotes from Psalm 22 twice while he is on the cross. The first one is right here in verse 1, and I've got a table to kind of uh, demonstrate this to help us, yeah. Um, In verse 1 of Psalm 22, it says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you skip ahead to the New Testament in Matthew 27, it says, verse 46, Jesus from the cross says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I won't take time to sort of tick through all of the examples that are mirrored in Psalm 22 and in the crucifixion account. You can see it for yourself. But I think it's pretty self-evident that the gospel writers viewed Psalm 22 as a prophetic telling of the crucifixion story. Psalm 22, get this, Psalm 22 was penned 1,000 years before Jesus was crucified. And 600 years before crucifixion as a means of torture had even been invented. So David is writing about a means of capital punishment that he knew nothing about and had never, ever seen before. And remember how I said that Jesus quoted twice from this psalm while he was on the cross? Well, it's a little hard to see this at first glance. But Jesus quotes the opening words of this psalm, and he quotes the closing words of this psalm, too. See those last five words? If you look down at verse 31... Your ESV says that he has done it. Those words could also be translated that it is finished. And so we see that mirrored in John 19. When Jesus is hanging on the cross and Jesus had received the sour wine, he says, it is finished. So Jesus clearly sees himself as the ultimate fulfillment of this Psalm 22. He views himself as the victor over suffering. 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Gives way to, it is finished. What was finished? Death, sin, suffering, despair. Despair gives way to hope. Suffering gives way to salvation. And death gives way to life. Jesus has done this through his life, death, and triumphant resurrection. So what do we glean from this? In the Monday to Friday, what does this mean for us? Well, we learn that Jesus' suffering was all in God's good plan. That Christ's suffering wasn't an accident. It was planned for our eternal good and prophesied many years before it even came. And if God could bring about good from the world's most unjust suffering, don't you think he can bring about good from your suffering? You can know God hears your prayers even when he appears to be silent because in the silence of Jesus' grave, God was still speaking. He was saying, wait, just wait. Trust me, I know the ending. Look, I know it's the fourth quarter and it seems like darkness has won, but wait, watch this. Things turn around. I know this because I know the end and it's better than the Philly special. It's the resurrection of the Son of God. And there's one other place that we find the words of David on the lips of the New Testament writers. And this is just too good to pass up. It's in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 to 12. It says this, For it was fitting that God should make the founder of salvation, that's Jesus, perfect through suffering. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, and here's where he quotes Psalm 22, verse 25. He says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. So if you're reading carefully, Jesus suffered that he might empathize with our suffering. Jesus transforms your suffering by ultimately triumphing over suffering. And his triumph is our triumph through faith. If you have never put your faith in Jesus, make today that day where you cast all of your hope onto the Christ, the Son of God, the one who lived for you, the one who died for you, and the one who ever lives above for you now. Jesus suffered that we might enter into his family. And isn't this crazy from Hebrews 2? He isn't ashamed of you. He isn't ashamed of me. For those of us in Christ this morning, by faith, by grace, your holy creator isn't ashamed of you. He is pleased with you. He's not afraid to call you family. I mean, we all probably have family members that we're kind of like, eh, I want to distance ourselves from that family member, right? Not God. Not because of Jesus or because of Jesus. The steady smile of your Savior is what can keep you stable in suffering. When you're tempted to only look around, look up. When you're tempted to only look around, look long. The end is sure, and you can suffer in stable condition. 